My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, I said, why you want to show up now? Just when the heart of my life was getting good. I'll give you one more chance. Walk on out of the door, yeah. Get your ass to getting where the getting is good. I would like to introduce my guests for the show. One of them was a student of mine many, many years ago. The other is his very lucky and plucky wife. They met at theater school, Dalen and Ashley O'Connell. Oh, hey, what's up? <laughs> Hello. How you doing? <laughs> so I've mentioned it briefly, but Dalen, you were my student. <laughs> tell me, tell us what you've been doing since then and what you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. So I was a perfectly normal teenager with perfectly normal ambitions um, until the day I auditioned for Aaron's play. Well, I think I was kind of forced, persuaded, let's say persuaded to audition for Aaron's play. (laughs) And from there on out, I lived, breathed and moved theater and it hasn't really changed since. He somehow convinced me that I, I was good at it. And so I got a degree and met my wife through that degree and had a kid and am still doing that thing so having more kids yeah yeah there's a second one on the way here coming up now all we do is have kids and do theater so that's that's pretty much us in a nutshell yeah i mean some people collect stamps but (laughs) (laughs) and so ashley your background is uh you're from colorado right i am yeah okay so what's Um, what's your story sure so i started theater when i was really young i was in dance from like the time I could walk. My mom just really wanted me on the stage. So that's where I started and lived, ate and breathed theater. So (laughs) I've done it my whole life. I can't imagine not doing it. Yeah, I met this really dorky guy in Casper, (laughs) Wyoming of all places. And he just like latched onto me and then hasn't let go. So <laughs> now we live in Minnesota. Yeah. So you're yeah. in the Twin Cities area now, right? We are. Uh, working up there. Yeah. So what have you been doing over the last couple of years? And I know, you know, I mean, COVID has hit and everybody's been hit hard by it. But before then, what were you doing? What are you planning on doing? How are things up in the Twin Cities? Well, uh, they're good. Um, we both got our, our Bachelor of Fine Arts in Theater. Um, Ashley got hers in Musical Theater. She's the real song and dance type. And Ashley's actually the reason I got my associate's degree in, in acting. But Ashley is the reason that I just I switched to tech later on because I realized that if she was the competition, I wasn't going to make it. <laughs> so I got my BFA in Technical Theater with an emphasis in Scenic Design. So since then, I spent two years as a private contractor. I worked at all kinds of theaters. I mean, everything from tiny little churches 
all the way up to the Guthrie, which is some awesome. huge Broadway scale shows. As a contractor, there were times I was working for six theaters at once and I was going you know, to three of them a day. I'd do that for three weeks and then there'd be no work for three weeks. <laughs> so I just go from push, 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 you know, 5 a.m. To, to, to midnight you know, for three weeks straight and then just boom, no work. So oh, we decided uh, about the time we had a kid that, you know, now we're old and should sow some roots. So um, uh, just as soon as, as COVID hit and all my contracts just tanked all at once, like all seven theaters just oh. out the door. Yep. Um, I got hired on as a, a technical director at a high school and, it, and it's a middle school. So we do eight shows a year. And then I also teach a, a stagecraft class currently just for the middle school. But next year it'll be for the high school, too. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. That's so that's great. so I, I really lucked out. I'm the only one of my friends at all that I know of my technical friends that has a job right now. So since you've been up there, how many productions do you think like collectively you two have been a part of? Oh, man. <laughs> um, including college? Sure. Why not? Uh, yeah. College, we were doing probably eight shows together a year. After that, she winds up helping me on most of my contracts, probably upwards of 50 yeah oh, 50 or 60 yeah. in the last couple awesome. years in the last couple years see that's yeah. awesome that's it's great. it's been wild yep and that's right. everything from we've just been hired to help paint it, it, word has gotten around that she's also pretty handy so she gets <laughs> op- often gets hired on with me um so we've been it, everything from hired to just paint a show all the way up to hey we need you to do light sound set design build you, you gotta oh, wow. do well so yeah awesome yeah. Wow. Okay. So quite the uh, dynamic duo, as it were, then. Uh, I'm technically <laughs> still employed by four or five theaters, but nobody's heard from them since last March. So <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Well, cool, guys. Um, I have a pretty interesting and juicy uh, little story here for you today. I mean, this is a really loaded question, and this is how I'm going to start this. I'm going to get into this a little bit later, but you know, when you talk to theater people about this topic... I never know what answer I'm going to get, even though I kind of can expect it. How much do you know about William Shakespeare? <laughs> it sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah. Um, Willie Shakes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A little bit, I would say. Well, he played for the Yankees a couple seasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, there was this other one and he wrote plays. So I'm going to start there. We'll just talk about that a little bit. In 2005, Columbia University professor Dr. James Shapiro wrote a book detailing a specific year in the life of William Shakespeare. The book was titled 1599, A Year in the Life of Shakespeare, and was praised for its ingenuity. It focused specifically on that year of the Bard's life based upon the works that came out that year. Quote, Shapiro's chosen date was inspired, the Annus Mirabilis, in which Shakespeare wrote Henry V, Julius Caesar, and as you like it, back to back, and probably completed a first draft of Hamlet, not to mention revising several sonnets. Sure, Shakespeare wrote them. (laughs) Yeah, right, okay. I didn't send you any hints on this, did I? Okay. The book (laughs) was highly acclaimed for focusing on what may have been one of the most strenuous writing efforts of the playwright's career, and this was even before he began writing most of the darker works for which he is generally the most praised. On the Columbia University website, Dr. Shapiro is noted as an expert in Shakespeare and the early modern period, and a list of his works on Shakespeare is well-documented, including six full-length nonfiction novels on his specialties, five of which revolve around Shakespeare. 1599 also won the Theater Book Prize as well as the BBC Samuel Johnson Prize. 
His next book, however, turns some heads. While 1599 and his previous works on the Bard seem to give the sense that Shapiro accepted general knowledge about Shakespeare enough to complete the research and publish findings on the life of the playwright, the new book would make it seem as though his opinions had somewhat changed. Uh -oh. The next book was titled Contested Will, Who Wrote Shakespeare? Whoa. <laughs> What happened in 1560? <laughs> 1600. The tide turned. Uh, in the five years between publishing the two books, it was hinted that Shapiro would be doing something similar to 1599, but this time writing about the latter half of 1605 and the first half of 1606, when Shakespeare is recorded to have written King Lear and Macbeth, yeah, good. I guess, <laughs> I'm going to say it. I'm going to say world, it. This is my podcast, and I'm going down with it. <laughs> yeah, However, but I still have a job, so let's, <laughs> let's not spook anything. However, this was not the case for the new book. Shapiro ended up researching, writing, and publishing a work which brought to light the host of conspiracy theories regarding the true authorship of the works of William Shakespeare. But Shapiro apparently claims not to buy into these theories, but wrote the book to explore why people believe these theories. Quote from Shapiro, my attitude derives from living in a world which in truth is too often seen as relative and in which mainstream media are committed to showing both sides of every story. Shapiro even goes on to acknowledge how taboo the subject may be in academic circles. However, in the end, Shapiro winds up suggesting that all the theories written about in the book are just conjecture and he never really has taken them seriously and summarizes that Shakespeare probably wrote all of his works. So he wrote an entire book and at the at the end wrote JK LOL. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he prefaced by saying, I'm I'm writing a book about why people talk about this. <laughs> but but I don't believe it. I don't. I don't. No. No. Yeah, a, a conspiracist might say this, but oh, I don't oh. they would say. And they're they're, they're out the door. Yeah. Man. Come, can you believe what they think all this research oh, that yeah. I did? I mean, if you look through my 400-page book, you might get some idea of what these wackos <laughs> believe. But if it were true, wouldn't it be weird? Like, I mean, so you saying, I don't believe it, but if it no, were true. No, that, if it were true, I'd be like, I should write a book about this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering if maybe he had like a grip on the market. Like he wrote this big Shakespeare book and everyone was like, okay, fine. And no one contested it. And he's like, well, someone's got to contest every work. So I'm just going to write that too. Yeah. Besides. Like no one, maybe no one actually read the first one. Oh. And he was just really upset that no one like wanted to fight him about it. So he's like, fine, I'm going to fight me about it. But. Oh, so you write a sequel. What a scheme. Yeah. It isn't written by Ponzi, but jeez. Oh, <laughs> um, Shapiro eventually did write 1606, The Year of Lear in 2015. In it, Shakespeare, or, or Shapiro, my God, whoo! No, Shakespeare didn't write that. I know that much. Are you sure? Yeah, Shapiro, rather, focuses more on the political tensions in that year that led to Shakespeare or someone to have written King Lear, Macbeth, and Antony and Cleopatra. So basically a return to form. <laughs> He's like, he's like an ice cream sandwich of, of opinions. 
Are you saying that the authorship question is like the chocolate sides of an ice cream sandwich? And that yeah. conspiracy theories are the gooey, gooey center? Yeah, yeah, the stuff that make it like interesting. Like no one just wants the cookies. Right, right. That's just, you just put that over the ice cream to like mask the ice cream from your- Well, I mean, you can't just hold ice cream. You can't just bowl. bite into ice cream. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that would be crazy. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> But if you could, I mean, wouldn't that be weird? I mean, <laughs> I would it's never crazy. But just like just like a whole mouth in the ice cream bucket. I don't do that. No, I hear people do that. Right. Yeah. Write a book about that. <laughs> but now Pandora's box has been opened again. And a question that has been brought to light just to be somewhat extinguished still seems to flicker every now and then. Mm. Basically. The summary of the arguments against Shakespeare's true authorship all seem to center around Shakespeare's education, or lack thereof, and his socioeconomic status. Pretty much, how can the son of an illiterate glove maker whose debts caused his son to abandon education in his teen years, how can that person be able to compose the wealth of humanity that is displayed within the complete works of William Shakespeare? The same thing has been said about Bezos, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because at one point he was flipping burgers. Like, it's a classic <laughs> Oprah story. I mean. Absolutely. Rags to riches. Well, to understand this, we have to understand a bit of the circumstances of the theater world Shakespeare found himself in, and a little bit about a life about the, I love this quote, the upstart crow of Stratford. Wow. No, burn. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into this, I have to give a disclaimer. And this is why I prefaced the question at the beginning of the episode this way. I do not claim to be an expert on Shakespeare. But one of my favorite tropes, and please tell me you have experienced this. One of my favorite tropes in theater is how everyone in theater is an expert on Shakespeare. If I had a nickel for every theater history professor, I've had say, Shakespeare is my speciality. Right. I would, I'd have way less student debt than I do. <laughs> I mean. And they all have like different theories and they can right. reach for this book and show you this is what he really was like. A lot of people will play humble like they don't know, but there are just so many self-proclaimed Shakespearean experts out there that well, probably if they listen to this, will write me and po try to poke a lot of holes in whatever I'm saying. And my message back to you naysayers is I don't care. So as far as I know, <laughs> I'm reporting basically general knowledge that is available to everyone. He's got the Wikipedia page pulled up right now. <laughs> oh, I, I have it right here. I just want to make sure that this is a podcast not about regurgitating Wikipedia. <laughs> so that said, <laughs> let's continue. So let's start by understanding where theater started in the British Renaissance. After the medieval age, Britain began to have a resurgence in economic and cultural influence in Europe. The crowning of Queen Elizabeth in 1558 was one of the most significant things that could have happened in Britain to develop a culture. I mean, Liz enjoyed the arts and specifically theater and she was getting tired of all these dusty old plays that had to be about this Bible story or that Bible story. Yeah, the passion plays get old. You read oh, one and literally oh. you've read all of them. Right, right. I mean, it's, we have this story and we'll make some shit up around it. Right. right. Makes it quasi entertaining, 
But at the end of it, we're still going to have the flood and Noah's going to have to save a couple puppets that we're going to bring on. Right. And the, the worst part of that, like learning about it, every theater history teacher is like, all right, we're going to learn about the medieval times and they were bad and they were passion plays. Here's the, the same play you're going to read in every class. I have read the second shepherd's play and performed it yep. so many times. I mean, yep. it's been, it's ridiculous. Every class they're like, and this is the only medieval play worth reading at all. Right. I actually, I, I had to teach that a couple of years ago. I taught every man and we did do yeah. the second shepherd play as well. Cause I'm like, okay, this is just an example. It'll take you 45 minutes, just finish. Yeah. And then every man, same thing. Uh, I found, oh my God, I found this great version of it on YouTube that was like, you know, I, there was one interesting convention that they applied. Every member of the cast, except for one, got to play every man at some point in the show. And I'm like, okay, so that's really taking the title literally, but it works out. Yeah. Uh, and the way they do it is every man had this vest. And uh, whenever it was transitioning from character to character, their lines would overlap on top of each other and they'd pass off the vest. And then the old every man would go off into the wings and the new every man would take, take over on stage. There were two things about that one that was so, well, like three or four things that I loved. It was like really, really brilliant, but really weird at the same time. And I'm yeah. going, are we being weird just to like keep this interesting? Or <laughs> <laughs> they had like the prologue and epilogue was given by an angel, which was presented by a man in really good shape on stilts and they were like stilts that made his legs look like pan legs like they had backward knees and everything okay. and he could and they were like 20 feet tall and he could hardly stand on them so it was like watching him just like totter around and make sure he wasn't going to fall over while he's given this very eloquent <laughs> and you're also going that guy's really good looking. <laughs> he's, all of his clothes are really tight. Oh, oh yeah. I'm distracted by everything. <laughs> I think the Why best do you part think of Peter was, in that time was done by all men. I mean, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> At the end, they actually had every man ascend to heaven, but it was literally a handheld puppet. Oh, and no. they somehow got it on a line and it just went wow. <laughs> it was like watching uh, like a Sesame Street extra <laughs> ascend into the afterlife excellent. <laughs> excellent so back back to Elizabeth people really listened to her and uh, mainly when she was able to defeat and execute her cousin Mary, Queen of Scots, officially ending a Catholic campaign to restore the Catholic faith to the English crown. That's when people really started to listen to her. <laughs> like, okay, this lady knows what she's doing. It's business. Then, 30 years into her reign in 1588, when the British Navy defeated the Spanish Armada, they were able to open up tons of routes of trade and exploration, and the British economy somewhat exploded. So opening up trade also opened up new ideas coming from the continent to be spread to the tiny little British Isles. Hence the term Renaissance. Re-evaluating sans. <laughs> yeah, re-evaluating yeah. the sanses. Yeah. Rather, rebirth of classical ideals. For the previous millennium, 
England had been stuck in something of a philosophical and cultural rut known as the Dark Ages. They seem to kind of come out of it about 300 years before the Renaissance, but you know, it took a little longer for ideas to pass around back then. And plus, for 300 years, plays hadn't really been about anything but biblical stories or stories at least inspired by vice and virtue. The morals of pretty much every one of those was either heaven is amazing, hell is bad, and you'll earn your way to one of these places one way or the other, so make sure your life is going where you want it to go. Life isn't worth living unless you're trying to get into heaven, and also God and Jesus rock. Also, theater bad unless it's in the church. Unless it's in the church. Right. Uh, right. But then poor people can't come in and see it. Okay, I guess we'll move it outside. It is getting expensive. All right, fine. We'll do theater outside. <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> yeah. Now, on the European continent, they had already begun to study these classical works that I had mentioned before, here meaning the works of ancient Greece and Rome. Universities were established all over Europe to focus on the full-time study of these works. Now, one tenet of Greek philosophy seemed to catch on in the Renaissance and develop even further. Humanism. A pervading element of Greek culture was just to see how perfect or godlike a person could become without actually transubstantiating into a god. Hence... The stilts. The stilts. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Actually, what I was going to say, <laughs> that could be. <laughs> I know I can reach Olympus. The, the wigs helped too, you know, the, the higher the hair, the closer to God. Yeah. But in Greece, to try to get to this ideal human, you have things like philosophy and sculpture and nude Olympics. Yes. That... Because... My God, athletes seem to have really great bodies. Let's watch them. <laughs> For self-bettering purposes. Right, right. And of course, it was only men. Men were the only ones who could do right, it. Right, yep. Have you ever seen the little device they had to use to hoist? And it's like a little sack, and they tie it around their tummy. To do what? To, uh, to make sure that uh, the boy parts aren't flopping around like crazy we're talking like 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 an ancient greek jock strap yeah yeah oh. yeah no i haven't seen those but i'm not surprised you have uh no no i just read about them oh uh, right yeah and wrote about them yeah right. yeah right here i just wrote about it right here <laughs> but most of the plays of that time obviously were focusing on correcting universal human errors so renaissance philosophers took this and began to think that after a thousand years of trying to prep their room in heaven, maybe there could be something worth doing with your time on earth. Like running uh, nude. Well, yeah. I mean, the Puritans at that time were like, nah, probably not. I mean, <laughs> a little bit of ankle is a little spicy, if you know what oh, I mean. Yeah. But girls, hoist them up. <laughs> yeah. Powder the shit out of them and then you'll be accepted. So, as I mentioned, this furious study took place in universities. Usually, only those who could afford to go would actually attend universities, because mainly universities were meant to train, you know, important people like doctors and lawyers and soldiers and people who are going into public service, stuff like that. But some people could earn sponsorships or be awarded scholarships and would attend. Now, the point of these universities was, yes, to train people in general knowledge, but 
also to evolve education from there and see what innovations could come from applying the knowledge gained. In British universities, students began poring over the surviving plays from Greece and Rome and adapting their methods as best they could by combining what they had gained out of medieval theater. Most of the early works that came out of British universities were somewhat crude, but um, introspective short comedies. And by crude, I don't mean like, you know, it was uh, base humor or anything. It's just, you know, they did what they could. It wasn't, it wasn't flashy or anything. It was They're just still kind of learning like, comedy again, so. Prototype, yeah. Right, right. People might like fart jokes. Let's write right, one. We'll give, we'll give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> Most of these comedies were only played for members of the university, and they hired boys' companies to play all the parts. Hmm. Okay. It's still right. sticking with that, you know? Only men can do it. What? And, and, and the Pope is just now getting around to saying that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I thought it was sort of always the unwritten rule. Yeah. And some of these boys' companies were also dispatched to the court of Queen Elizabeth, who, as I've said before, freaking loved theater. Now, a small group of these so-called learned people at universities, they became known as, quote, wits, because they were reputed to have a lot of them. <laughs> I mean, it, it's obvious that only a smart and educated person can come up with something clever in his brain and put it down <laughs> on paper for everyone to enjoy, right? If, if dumb people aren't funny, I've got two strikes against me already. <laughs> <laughs> now, of these wits, one of the most famous was a playwright we all should know, Christopher Marlowe. Marlowe. Marlo. Right. But I'll come back to him later. <laughs> <laughs> we knew he was coming. As soon as you said Shakespeare, we knew he wasn't far behind. Eventually... These plays started to get a little bit more notoriety and the general public started demanding access. Something that may have attributed to this was that Elizabeth more or less banned stories about the Bible to be performed. I mean, she just flat out said, look guys, I know you've been writing them for 300 years, but knock it off. <laughs> Stop. So people were really excited for something different. <laughs> like, oh God, well, we're not gonna talk about the Bible? What are we? Please bring it on! I mean, they had had televangelism for so long, and then somebody came along with Benny Hill. <laughs> like, here, watch this. And they're like, <sighs> Oh my gosh. The greatest thing I've ever seen! I don't think I'll ever be the same. The London City Fathers, not wanting to pollute the city of London with potential indecency, forbade the performance of theater from the central area of London. So <laughs> I love looking at a map of this. I mentioned it in the last episode. It's so great to see like a map of where all the Elizabethan theaters were because it was like, oh, where can we not go? Fine, we'll go right across the street. <laughs> it's like you can see where there's this area where they're not allowed and then there's just like this ring of them like just surrounding London like hello please come and enjoy our lewdness we're on this side of the line now we're not now we are now, no, we're, oh, now we are we're across the river oh my goodness so pretty much all of the public theaters put on the outskirts Kind of a weird move considering how much Elizabeth appreciated theater and so did a lot of wealthy patrons. But once the theater buildings were established, that's where they stayed. And now the plays of the wits could be performed publicly. 
which invited people not of the university crowd to get involved with the industry. And here's where we find ourselves getting into Shakespeare. Now, I don't wanna spend a lot of time on this topic. We've already talked about a lot of stuff because we've also got a lot more stuff to discuss. So we'll just make sure we kind of cover the basics of the bard's life that's generally agreed upon, yeah? Yeah. And yeah. feel free to interject and tell me, no, that's not what I understand. And I'll tell you, you're wrong. <laughs> just like every other theater professor history we've ever had. <laughs> theater history. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> Whatever you said, disagree. Um, what actually is correct is what I believe. Once I wrote an article. 50 years ago at my community college. <laughs> yes, you got it. Not knocking on community colleges. They're great no. kids. Go, save money, have a good time. That's right. That's right. William Shakespeare was baptized on April 26th, 1564, which has led plenty to surmise that he was actually born on April 23rd. Usually it was like a three-day incubation period before you could spritz water on the baby. Mm. And then that's when you name the baby. They got a hatch, right? Yeah. They got a hatch. Yeah. That incubation is important. Yeah. I mean, men didn't know anything about this. <laughs> is it is it ready for the water or not? <laughs> Do I need salt and garlic? <laughs> William was born to John Shakespeare, a leather craftsman and glove maker, and Mary Arden in the small town of Stratford-upon-Avon, about 100 miles northwest of today's London proper. Okay, we're all in agreement there. Cool. Okay. John Shakespeare was a somewhat respected member of the small community and was elected to several offices, including the role of town alderman, which is kind of like being on city council. This allowed his son, William, to be afforded a grammar school education. Because yes, even for basic knowledge, it paid to get in. Right. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, eventually John began to fall on hard times. Between 50, oh, I love this. Between 1577, and 1586, yes, that's nine years, he attended town council meetings once, causing him to lose his position as alderman. In the course After of nine, nine years. years. <laughs> wow. Which I one mean, did I... he attend? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, he showed up to the last one and they're like, you're, oh, you, you're still the alderman? You can't oh, be we gotta here. fix that. You're Fired. Oh, crap. <laughs> they were just waiting for him to show up so they could fire him. Oh my no, God. no, I want to see the look on his face. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't find anything about how frequently the town council met, if it was like a weekly thing or monthly or seasonal. I don't know. More than once. Even I yearly. Assume. That's that's not a good <laughs> average. <laughs> Nine years. Just just the person taking role. And John Shakespeare. Um, yeah, he, he said he's sick today. His cat got diabetes. How many cats does he have? <laughs> <laughs> so the family was committed to the Church of England, but John was also frequently noted for being absent from church service on Sundays, possibly because he was afraid of being arrested for having debts. I mean, debtor's prison in those days was like no freaking joke, you know? It was like, yeah. You could be put away for a certain number of years and and regardless of whether or not the person got paid back, it's like your time served equaled money. Are you saying if they lock me up now, my student debt just <laughs> gone? Well, I, I, I think there is some ethical reason that they stopped doing that. I'm not sure. I was born in the wrong decade. <laughs> yes, I have lots of debt. 
<laughs> Take me, please. Three hearts and a cart, please. Um, in addition, it has been discovered that John was committing usury, which is kind of like lending money when it only benefits the lender and not the lendee, and for the illegal trade of wool. Oh, man. He was a I'm, wool dealer? You miss out on council meetings. You're not going to church, and... Wool is a gateway fabric. Yeah. I mean, first it's wool, then it's hemp, God forbid. Oh, my God. And then linen. Oh, oh my gosh, linen. Now we're getting deep. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to bring up something so personal. Decriminalize wool is all I'm saying. <laughs> so in order to help his family settle their debts, young William was forced to quit grammar school, and most research indicates he would have done this at about age 13. Now, back then, grammar school was no joke. Our foundational education today is mainly rooted in math and English, whereas the foundational education of Shakespeare's day was mainly rooted in the study of works by Virgil and Plato, Cicero, Pythagoras, etc. Is etc. one of their names, or is that just there's more of them? <laughs> that, uh, yes. Yeah, he uh, was the uh, uh, creator of the run-on sentence. Now, these works also were generally printed in Latin. So put yourself in that position. Take yourself in like second grade and think <laughs> about what you were learning in second grade. Now we're going to take addition of two digit numbers off the table. <laughs> and now you have to study Virgil. And what oh. does he have to say about concubines? <laughs> <laughs> and translate it for me. When Plato uh, asks, what, why is our existence substantial? What does I he- I wet my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I love Plato. <laughs> I like to eat Plato. <laughs> now, if Shakespeare would have left school at 13, he would have only been somewhere between a year to two years from finishing grammar school and possibly to university thereafter, if he could have found a sponsor. Mm -hmm. So he was dang close to being done. But of course, this is not the way for William. Records indicate that at age 18, William married Anne Hathaway. Don't get excited. Dark Knight? Oh. Yeah, Catwoman. You're right. And the couple had a few children together. I won't go into too much more of the details of the Bard's career. We're all pretty familiar with his work. What I will say is that he is known to have joined some acting companies in London and then been kind of the head of one. His name was on their rosters. It's not exactly known when he began writing, but it would seem that several of his plays would have been up and running on London stages by 1592, when William was only 28. This is when potentially libelous and envious commentary began, when contemporary author and playwright Robert Greene wrote in his, oh god, this is the title, Grootsworth of Wit. <laughs> Once more? <laughs> Grootsworth <laughs> God, hook, line, and speaker. Actually, you got me. Okay. <laughs> now I'm going to see if I can do this in my best Robert Green voice, as I'm sure, like, this is like the guy who, like, carves stuff into, like, the bathroom stalls. Yeah. Billy, don't look at those words when you go in. They don't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do, Look at all of them. <laughs> there is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his 
Tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide supposes he is as well able to bombast out a blank verse as the best of you. And being an absolute, I'm going to screw this up, but I love it. Johannes Factotum, in his own conceit, the only shake scene in a country. That's like the original diss track. Like that... (laughs) If Eminem was alive in the 1600s, that that's him. <laughs> this is Ice Cube after he's been kicked out of NWA. He's like, fine, I'm starting my own. The best with you. Oh, oh my wow, gosh. That, yeah, is, that so is a guy that's pissed off that somebody is funnier than him. <laughs> that's exactly what that is. That's like, you know, I get a little upset when I'm not the funniest one in the room, but I get over it. This guy... Didn't get over it. Yeah. So it would seem that William was ruffling some feathers with the pre-established theatrical community. Robert Greene was one of these aforementioned wits. (laughs) So he learned his trade at university and couldn't possibly conceive that somebody with the upbringing of Shakespeare could write plays that were worth anything. Isn't that what theater always is, though? It's It's like you've got all these like super educated you'll have like somebody that's got like their, their master's degree in musical theater and they've been classically trained since they were two and they auditioned for a role. And the person that gets it is like this 16 year old guy <laughs> that like bought some tap shoes at a secondhand store and On like way there. Right. Yeah. And, and sings green day in the garage. Right. And he's <laughs> This kid has something to him. Yeah, yeah really. And there's, you know, Orville C. Pennyworth over there. Eh, but, but I studied. <laughs> eight times i got the piece of paper that says i'm good i know how to do this <laughs> i was on a podcast hey <laughs> but nonetheless shakespeare's plays remain popular and shakespeare became somewhat synonymous with quality on the stage garnering attention from both low and high classes at the beginning of the 17th century it was a little rough on will His son, Hamnet, died from an illness at age 11 in 1596. His father, John, died in 1601. And Elizabeth I died in 1603. All three of these figures had a profound impact on William. Hamnet was his only son. John was his father. Elizabeth was the queen of the country, but more so an avid fan of his work in particular. So it's no surprise that the next several years of his life saw a very dark turn in his career. This is when Shakespeare wrote some of his best tragedies. Hamlet in 1599, Othello in 1603, Macbeth and King Lear in 1606. So then when his theater, The Globe, burned down in 1613, Shakespeare hung up the quill, retired to his birthplace in Stratford, where he died on April 23rd, 1616. And it is widely believed that he died on his birthday. The works attributed to Shakespeare contain 37 canonical plays and 154 sonnets. These works are celebrated as the fruit of the best playwright of the English language. So nothing to contest there, right? Like, that was pretty bare bones, yeah? And and Shakespeare dying on his birthday is like the most Shakespeare thing Shakespeare could have done. (laughs) Like having this great booming career and then it all ending in total tragedy on his birthday. That's like, it's like he made it happen. Like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but if I was, <laughs> I'd write about how he planned the whole thing. I mean, can he, 
like maybe he was just getting sick you know didn't bowie like die very near his birthday as well yeah something like that uh, <laughs> and knew it was coming <laughs> very strange can't get too famous because then you just gotta die on your birthday oh man glad this podcast will go nowhere <laughs> <laughs> so my question is with this bare bones account where does this question of authorship come in i think like i've said earlier the most obvious answer is specifically the lack of education that was something people could pick on and the considerable works that he put together considering that lack of education right. in addition most scholars agree that Marlowe was actually way more talented with verse, but his total works pale in comparison to the volume of Shakespeare's. And while Shakespeare's plays are obviously much more well-known today, the works of his contemporaries may have been more popular at the time. Ben Jonson, his rival, was actually considered a better playwright, and his works were continued after the Renaissance more frequently than Shakespeare's. It wasn't until the late 19th century, long after the age had passed and could be studied academically, that Shakespeare replaced his rivals as not only the greatest writer of his time, mm -hmm. but the greatest writer of all time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, you don't exactly, see Christopher Ashley. Marlowe on a, on a bust on a desk or on a coffee mug. <laughs> like, you'll mm -hmm. be a t-shirt. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we'll mail you your action figure. <laughs> So it's not surprising then that the first couple of theories began to poke their heads out around the end of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Now at that time, many academics were practicing higher criticism, which basically meant to get to the foundation of literary works. Now in some cases, this was seen as very incendiary because many academics would be challenging such works as uh, the Bible. <laughs> No, Jesus wrote all those. Um, <laughs> king James couldn't have had an agenda. He was King James. He was king. He had bigger things to do. <laughs> <laughs> then wrote a then translate a Bible that benefited him in a very weird time in religion history. <laughs> I, I did mention that in the last in the last episode where he was like, um, does that challenge my authority as king? Oh, I don't see how it could. I do. Cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Now, some academics, such as Delia Bacon, sought to undo what she considered bardolatry, or rather, the practical deification of the works of Shakespeare. Because there are those people who, like, they're like, he is the living embodiment of humanity. <laughs> and, you know, even him at his time, he would have been like, yeah, I wrote some plays. I got some money out of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now, Delia Bacon, she really clung to that idea of that education gap in that she couldn't possibly conceive how he had the ability that he did. She really attacked him consistently, throwing lots of insults his way regarding his intelligence, his place in society, and trying to depict him as something of a drunk. Delia opted instead to suggest that the works were partly written by the famous scientist and philosopher of her namesake, Francis Bacon. No relation could be determined that I found. The, the Sir Francis Bacon, right? The Sir Francis Bacon, yes. Yeah. Philosopher, scientist, statesman. I mean, there are some of his works that were influential in creation of the American government, things like that. 
Delia's theory surmises that Francis wrote the works with other educated men, Sir Walter Raleigh and Edmund Spencer, in order to put forth deep philosophical questions to the members of court when the plays were presented to royalty and nobility. I can't say those words without acting like that. (laughs) (laughs) Furthermore, Delia saw these plays as a method to instill doubt in the current powers that be, so Queen Elizabeth, Mm-hmm. and intended for the plays to be catalysts for social change. <laughs> and they were not. The theater keeps trying. It keeps trying. <laughs> it's trying to bring it down. Still, hundreds of years later, we're still putting on those same plays saying, thinking this will change society. I'm going to take down. down Elizabeth I. <laughs> She's going down in 2024. <laughs> <laughs> now, Delia's theories remained in discussion, though. And there's a great story of these two riverboat drivers on the Mississippi River debating the authenticities of Delia's claims, one of whom was Samuel Clemens, who we came to know with the pen name Mark Twain. (laughs) Towards the end of his career, Twain swore that in his edition of the first folio, he could identify a code that would result in the signature Francisco Bacono, Francis Bacon. Is is this from the Da Vinci Code? (laughs) (laughs) I got this box that has letters on it, and if I twist the letters, it says his name. (laughs) Now, not too many went along with Delia's theory, and most basically, it, uh, they basically filed it away as overreaching conjecture. Now, even Dr. Shapiro suggests that If she had taken different tactics and not been so gung-ho on proving it in a certain way, she might have been able to convince more people and possibly opened up this entirely new facet of historicism and historical research. And when when did she write this? This was like at the end of the 19th century. So I suppose also maybe, you know, I mean like, sexism and authorship was still a big thing there too so that might have had something to do with her credibility kind of yeah i mean which sucks like she was actually a very educated woman like she right, right. yeah she went up and up and up the only thing that i was able to see that really kind of discredited her she kind of took in with this guy named alexander mcwarder who's like you know what we should really do is try to disprove that shakespeare was a guy but the unfortunate side of all of this is that she didn't take a different tactic. People in literary and historical circles were like, OMG, shut up. You know it's bad when people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, oh. basically, like one of the most serene people ever, right. writes that you're a complete wacko. <laughs> and the only person who might come to your defense is Walt Whitman. <laughs> That literally happened. Like, you should just see this, like, seething little thing that Whitman wrote. He's like, it's just really unfair what people say about it. You know, he drank another pint of tequila. Right, right, of course. That's kind of a little bit of a plain theory of of Shakespearean authorship. Right. But hers was not the only one that focused on the topic of Shakespeare's education. Famed psychologist Sigmund Freud was known to have used Hamlet as a proof for his theory of the Oedipus complex. Now, as a refresher, Freud's theories are mostly sexual in nature. 
delving into the basis of sexual urges. His Oedipus complex refers to Sophocles' play Oedipus Rex, in which the title character, a king, realizes he killed his mother and married his father years ago, and then bore two children out of incest, therefore must suffer due to his pride that he believed he could prove the gods wrong of this truth. Hate it when that happens. <laughs> now Freud's idea of the complex surrounds a frequency of young men's competition with their fathers and sexual attractions to their mothers. He had a similar complex about fathers and daughters called the Electra complex. Ah, Guess yeah. where he got that one? <laughs> Daredevil. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if the Library of Alexandria hadn't burned down, imagine what Freud could have been. I mean, <laughs> he would have had to come up with so many more theories. <laughs> what? They worshipped cats in Egypt? <laughs> You mean we all want to have sex with cats? No. no, no. Well, it's interesting that we chose a word that sounds like cat. <laughs> <laughs> a euphemism, if you <laughs> So in any case, Freud actually felt that Hamlet exhibited the Oedipus complex better than the play Oedipus Rex did, despite naming the complex after the latter. Right. However, when Freud found out that Hamlet and the plot of Hamlet may have actually come from works released before Shakespeare actually wrote it, he began to doubt the nature of the authorship. I mean, never mind that it was actually a characteristic of British Renaissance writing, basing works on previously published materials. Hey. Everyone in the British Renaissance based Everyone. their plays on prior works. Yeah. I mean, all of Shakespeare's stories can be traced like right back to the existing Greek plays. Right. I mean, Romeo and Juliet is just Pyramus and Thisbe. And later in, in Midsummer's Night Dreams, he admits it. Yeah. He's like, here's the play I was reading when I thought of Romeo and Juliet. Also, we're going to put it on for you. Well, I mean, in Faustian legend, Marlowe didn't just come up with that. Right. No. Yeah. <laughs> Tales of people selling their soul to the devil or a demon for some right. sort of pleasure. Uh, yeah. So just everything is recycled Greek and Roman uh, material. I mean, right. Freud was basing this off the idea that there might have been another person who wrote a plot similar to Hamlet like three years before Shakespeare did. Mm. No copyright situation there. You that, know, if you had a problem with somebody, you could find him in an alley and stab him or something. That's like saying like, like Disney didn't write Lion King because we have Hamlet. Right. Like, I mean. Jungle Hamlet. Um, <laughs> but of course, this was not enough to dissuade Freud. And now most of his studies and theories and public remarks came from a book called Shakespeare Identified by J.T. Loney, spelled... L-O-O-N-E-Y, but I promise you they made sure I pronounced it Loney, not oh, Looney. Right, because that discredits all, right there. <laughs> Do you hear what this Looney wrote? That's my name. <laughs> Why he didn't have that legally changed. He must be a proud man. <laughs> we Loonies have a, a wonderful history. A lot of great Loonies in our family. It's not like in, there weren't pen names. You could just be like, my name is J.T. Smith. <laughs> and here's my great uncle Looney. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's pronounced Looney. Looney. <laughs> Looney. <Sure. Lone> <laughs> now, in this book, Looney posits that mm -hmm. it was not Shakespeare who wrote the plays, but rather Edward de Vere. 
Do you know this name? That one's not no. come up, no. He was the 17th Earl of Oxford, who lived at the time when Shakespeare's plays began growing in popularity. Oxford was known to have been an accomplished poet and playwright and had some of his work staged for the court. But here's where some real conspiratorial shit comes in. Here we go. Here we go. It is suggested that Oxford was one of the secret lovers of Queen Elizabeth I, who bore him a son. No. Now, there was one theory that the boy was given the name William Hughes, and when he grew to adulthood, he was given the stage name of William Shakespeare, and he used his father's works as his own, mainly to protect his father's identity. Huh. <laughs> but then William Shakespeare still wrote them, kind of. Well. A William. There's, there's more to it than this. Okay. okay. <laughs> the more prevalent theory is that the child was not named William at all. And I couldn't, I, I, I just, I didn't write down his name, but he became, the, the bastard child became the Earl of Southampton. But due to the child's bastardy, had no claim to the English throne. The theory also concludes that Oxford was an orphan and became the ward of Sir William Cecil, an advisor to the throne, well known for his puritanical ideals. Oxford was married to Cecil's daughter, Anne, which allowed him to gain his title. But Cecil denounced all of Oxford's artistic sensibilities, which fueled a stark tension between them. So when Oxford and Elizabeth supposedly had a child together in secret, it became Oxford's intent to instill a monarch to bring Cecil to ruin. The story oh. goes, that Oxford wrote plays to gain the Queen's favor and eventually needed a public face in which to have them performed. Because if it was his plays that it was even like suggested that Oxford wrote Richard III to be a hunchback because William Cecil was also a hunchback. So he okay. was making fun of him publicly. Mm. Great. But, you know, if this theory were to be true, then Oxford couldn't just out himself. He couldn't just like come out and 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 like openly declare he's trying to gain Elizabeth's attention by writing plays so he can get in her company without like forcing himself in there because anybody who'd have to see the queen would have to go through Cecil. And so he can just be like, oh, I'm trying to take you down. So he comes up with this elaborate idea to write plays. Now there's this young upstart actor named William Shakespeare, mm. who was happy to receive Oxford's sponsorship and produce Oxford's plays in his own name, obviously. Mm. Of course. <laughs> the queen became aware of these plays and invited Shakespeare's company to court in which Oxford apparently revealed the whole thing to the queen in a private session. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So okay. needless to say, Oxford did not choose the next monarch. Elizabeth died in 1603, Oxford died in 1604. William Cecil actually died in 1598. So bringing him down <laughs> this elaborate <laughs> plot didn't do a lot after he was dead. No, no. All of this is well detailed in the 2011 film Anonymous. Have you seen this? Uh -uh. Directed by Roland Emmerich of Independence Day fame. Oh. <laughs> okay, wow. A little bit of a turn. 
<laughs> I won't spoil too much of the rest of the film or the theory as it takes some kind of weirdo turns in the movie. But the movie currently stands on Rotten Tomatoes with a critical score of 45% and an audience score of 53%. Yes, right up my alley. Perfect. <laughs> I started to watch it this week and getting ready for this. I turned it off an hour in. <laughs> like, I may have had a drink. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, you know, like when you're at, at home watching a movie, you might be a little bit more boisterous with it than you might be, uh, say, yeah. in, you know, a movie theater. Like, if something is bothering you, you might lean over to the person and go, this is total bullshit. But there was a point when I was watching that movie that I'm like, this is well done, but bullshit. <laughs> 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 I just, like, I, I seriously just like grabbed the remote. Like, oh, I got to switch back to Great British Bake Off. I can't take it. <laughs> uh, the movie is available for free on Crackle. <laughs> now, in the end, Loney's theory actually caught quite of attention and public support. Here's a short list of the public figures who supported the Oxfordian theory in uh, this is the list. It includes Uh-oh. Charlie Chaplin, okay. Helen Keller, Malcolm X, and known Shakespearean actors, Derek Jacobi and Vanessa Redgrave. Uh, aside from the, the actors, didn't everyone else have bigger fish to fry? <laughs> <laughs> Helen Keller? I, I, <laughs> Why? She's entitled to her opinion. <laughs> Just feels like they've got so many other things to accomplish. It doesn't matter who wrote Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I love that Helen Keller. I could just, I could just see it. I am here to support people with disabilities. And by the way, Shakespeare didn't write it. Right? <laughs> Like I, I read understand. some of Malcolm X's speeches and they're great, but I don't ever remember that being was it subtext? Was there something I just didn't I missed? Stand up for yourselves if the police won't stand up for you, and by the way, <laughs> <laughs> on to more pressing matters. <laughs> now Derek oh Jacoby and Vanessa Redgrave, both amazing classical actors, both appeared in the film Anonymous. Oh. Oh, well, they were paid to, to agree then. I mean, <laughs> right. why would you not promote your own movie? <laughs> <laughs> like press tours afterwards, like, do you believe this? Um, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, I mean, I say yes. yes yeah, my, uh, we did our research. My, my lawyer says I, I say yes. Yeah. Yep. Still under, still getting some royalties. Not a lot, but enough <laughs> to say yes. I believe it. There's another theater trope, Ashley. I'm glad you brought that up. I did my research. research. Yes. (laughs) I'm an actor. In 1984, a new work or a new series of works began to circulate advancing the Oxfordian theory. A historian named Charlton Ogburn produced several written works to question Shakespeare's authorship. He even went so far as to establish a mock court, which literally included three U.S. Supreme Court justices. John Paul Stevens, Harry Blackman, and William J. Brennan. Wow. To stand as the judges in a trial. Wait, and all of this just to prove that some dead guy might not have done what we thought he did. Yep, yep. Wow. 1987, so, you know, that's 400 years later. 
Yeah. You know, everyone else on the list, like, seems like they had a pretty decent life. You know, they were like rich or royalty or whatever. Let Willie have this. <laughs> like, you had a rough life. Like, come on. Give him something. He did his best. He died on his birthday, all right? <laughs> Come on. Just let it happen. Jeez. Now, hosted at American University in Washington, D.C. in 1987, Ogburn made his case as best he could, and the event was attended by over a thousand people. A thousand and one (laughs) is over (laughs) one (laughs) thousand. Ultimately, the court would decide against Ogburn even though Justice Stevens later wrote his support of Ogburn in an article entitled The Shakespeare Canon of Statutory Construction. Oh, man. (laughs) Wow. Why? (laughs) Yep. Now, if those theories weren't odd enough, here we go. Oh, boy. Big money. In my opinion, one of the oddest and frankly most fun theories goes back to one of the wits more specifically christopher marlowe yeah do you know about this well i will say in in all the theater history classes we've taken everyone's always like shakespeare was god also though some people think he wasn't and it might have been christopher marlowe moving on that's that's pretty much how every class has gone like some people don't think shakespeare was shakespeare and that he might have been marlowe but anyway I'm gonna. Uh, I'm a pro, so no. We're gonna fill in some gaps here, I think. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, Marlowe was praised for his ability to handle verse, uh, even better so than Shakespeare at times. He is known for something called the mighty line, which is basically a line of verse so thoroughly packed with outstanding profoundness and yet simplicity at the same time. Here are some examples from his play Hero and Leander. Whoever loved that loved not at first sight. Not bad, pretty profound. Here's the one he's probably most famous for from Dr. Faustus. Mm -hmm. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Speaking of Helen of Troy, who basically began the entire siege of Troy. From so simple a thing came such a huge result. Last one, also from Dr. Faustus. When all the world dissolves and every creature shall be purified, all places shall be hell that are not heaven. Dude's intense. I mean. I've actually got that bumper sticker on the back of my minivan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was going to get that tattooed, but they paid by the letter. (laughs) (laughs) However, Marlowe only has four plays to his name. But there's not been a lot of speculation as to why his name is praised as contemporary of Shakespeare, mainly due to his education. He was able to attend university and became known as a wit and is regarded as one of the originators of Elizabethan drama, yet his volume of work is so small. This is where it gets interesting. You see, Marlowe was notedly absent from a lot of his formal university training. He would show up sporadically and then be gone for long periods of time. He did receive his Bachelor of Arts degree from Cambridge in 1584 and eventually his Master of Arts in 1587. But it is also almost not awarded that bachelor's degree as the school administrators felt his absence may have been due to a secret conversion to Catholicism. No. 
all that time spent in the uh, confession booth. How do you hide that? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, just start praying, and if the signal of the cross happens, it happens. You know, like oh, that's it. That's it. I knew it. <laughs> you're, done. you're done. You got to do it. You got to do it. <laughs> and now everybody read. That one's kneeling. <laughs> <laughs> However, the Privy Council intervened. The Privy Council was a small council to the throne, kind of like the small council in Game of Thrones. They were the people that were like the top advisors to the top. Okay. Now they more or less forced Cambridge to award Christopher Marlowe his degree as his absence had been due to what they credited as unspecified, quote, affairs regarding, quote, matters touching the benefit of the country. That sounds strangely like... Like what? <laughs> benefiting the country? I don't know, like, what was what was the queen doing at the time? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Quote, benefiting affairs. Um, benefiting. He was banging the queen. I'm not, I'm not sure. um, no, no, unfortunately that's not the case. But hence, this like absolving of his absence by the Privy Council started the theory that Christopher Marlowe was in fact a secret government agent. That's cool. <laughs> and his biggest weapon was the quill. Well, clearly he was busy. That's why he only has four. <laughs> well, we'll get into this here in just a moment. In fact, the affairs referred to could have been the Babington plot, which was a plot by Roman Catholics to assassinate Queen Elizabeth and have Mary Queen of Scots assume the throne and thus reestablish the Catholic reign of England. Okay. The plot was foiled and it resulted in the execution of Mary. Oh. Now, how Marlowe is suggested to have been involved is not really known. What is known is that Marlowe died at the age of 29. And the way that is usually spoken of is that Marlowe was killed in a bar fight. Oh. However, the reported accuracy of the fatal wound is highly suspect. Okay. He was removed. I've never been in a bar fight. I've seen them. If this were just an ordinary bar spat, I think it's feasible to understand that a knife may come into the fray. I think it's also feasible to understand that if two or more men were fighting, it's also reasonable to understand that a knife might not be able to find a truly accurate landing point if a person were to strike in the middle of a fracas. Right. Yeah. Swinging wildly, stabbing if we can. Right. So when it was reported that Marlowe was stabbed directly in the eye Ow. <laughs> or in some reports directly above the eye, it does raise some suspicions. <laughs> yeah, like some train. Is this like, the, is this like a, a leak of the next Assassin's Creed game? Wow. <laughs> Final mission, kill Marlowe. <laughs> Save Shakespeare. <laughs> Assassin's Creed, Stratford. <laughs> <laughs> On Avon. <laughs> now one, pers 
possible explanation for this is that three of Marlowe's fellow spies who were probably in the Babington plot as well, were in the same tavern and they were eventually put on trial for Marlowe's death. They did end up spending some time in prison, but some of them were hired back by their boss, the Queen's spy master, Sir Francis Walsingham. It's a real person, promise. <laughs> now you, you were, you're kind of hitting on something there, Dalen. This suggests that Walsingham dispatched the spies to kill Marlowe in an effort to keep secrets hidden. Hmm. Marlowe had been discovered to have falsified coins in Flanders in Belgium. And also, 10 days before his death, Marlowe was supposed to appear before the Privy Council to answer to reports of blasphemy, among other things. <laughs> he may or may not have attended. So it could be that Walsingham was hired to eliminate a potential leak in intelligence. If if Marlowe was actually James Bond, I'm gonna I'm gonna feel guilty about it all the time. I just hated reading Dr. Faustus. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I might have to read it again and be like, this was written by 007. <laughs> <laughs> However, the theory that relates to Shakespeare's authorship is this. I, I can't wait. Like, I've built this up so much. I'm so sorry if your balloon is going to be popped here. It is said that Walsingham was apparently very keen on Marlowe and favored him in espionage missions. So, when Marlowe was potentially targeted by the Privy Council, Walsingham had to develop a plot of his own. Therefore, he had Marlowe's death faked and replaced the body with some other poor guy. No. Meanwhile, Marlowe was secretly sent to Italy where he spent the rest of his life to old age. And to keep his mind busy, and because he had backdoor channels of communication to London, he was able to write a number of plays that made it back to England, all to be produced under the name of William Shakespeare. Whoa. <laughs> 007 died, but he didn't. He pulled an Avril Lavigne and <laughs> then he wrote Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because when you're dead, what else but do you do besides- Why did he pick William Shakespeare? I think if, if this theory were to actually be true, then it's most likely that they were just sold and Shakespeare bought them. Oh. Like whoever was bringing them over was not like Shakespeare. This is from Marlowe. And <laughs> and somebody somebody has gone through all the work of piecing this this plot together instead of just accepting that somebody that didn't go to school <laughs> might have been good at writing. Yep. Like it, it's more feasible that Marlowe <laughs> was a secret agent <laughs> during the Renaissance. And it was picked off and was actually an assassin that died but didn't. But instead... <laughs> Did he have to wear an eye patch? <laughs> and a mustache. My wife is asking the important questions here. <laughs> well, I mean, he was stabbed there. So. Yeah. Right, all right. <laughs> I mean, there was actually, I think there was something I read that there were doctors who examined Marlowe's body 
And they're like, well, there's not possibly a way that a knife that went two inches into his brain could kill him. <laughs> <laughs> These are all the people who are like, if you're jealous, we will drain you of some bile. Right. <laughs> Put some leeches on him, he'll be fine. <laughs> so, as we've said, most of these theories sound like conjecture at best, no matter how, how well they can be backed up with historical fact. Even noted Shakespearean actor and director Mark Rylance, he's the BFG for crying in the rain. He doubts the authenticity of single authorship, but mainly because he claims that plays were much more collaborative back then. So everybody would have had a hand in writing right. it. Sure. And Shakespeare's name, because he was, you know, the master of his company by the end of his life, he just put his name on it. Right. Yeah. Now that, that's the, to me, that's the only one that I'm like, well, that actually kind of makes sense. Right. That yeah. makes sense. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but a, uh, in fact, conspiracy theories mainly can be seen as the efforts of the relatively powerless to have some sort of control over their world. I mean, look at the number of conspiracy theories that have come out over the last several years, uh, pointing this to that. I mean, honestly, have we ever found Obama's authentic birth certificate? You know, I mean, <laughs> all of these things. On his Slate podcast about Shakespeare, host Isaac Butler noted the following. Conspiracy theories in general arise when the very normal narrative making function we possess insert some causality between data points that don't really go together. The anxiety is causing our brains to make a story, but the story it makes is factually wrong. Yeah. yeah. So I guess to a finer point, rather than proving Shakespeare wrong, how can we prove him right? Noted Shakespearean directors, Trevor Nunn and Peter Hall, <laughs> have basically noted that Shakespeare had to have written the pieces because frankly, the way he describes the settings in England is according to none, I love this quote, so terribly British. The <laughs> <laughs> so places he's describing are like, oh God, yeah, that's just down the road. Yeah. <laughs> like we're here. <laughs> in addition, Shakespeare is believed to have never left England. So mm. while he's able to describe certain parts of geography with accuracy since maps existed, but still claim that the area now known as the Czech Republic has a coastline. It doesn't. Uh, <laughs> How does that fit with him being a genius? Right. right. However, isn't that what the term genius really means? Extraordinary aptitude? Yeah, Mozart was and, a baby. He didn't go to school yet. Right. right. And I mean, like, and I feel like some of Shakespeare's plays might have become accidentally substantial. Like Shakespeare wrote it and had no idea that we would look so heavily. Like we've had so many years to pick it apart oh, and yeah. be like, oh, this is actually commentary on life and society and everything. And for all we know, Shakespeare just wrote a play. <laughs> yeah. Like he, he had none of that. For all we know, he had none of that in mind. He was just There was, like, there was no intent in him to go, I am going to be the greatest writer, yeah, Yay, right. not just right. in England. <laughs> but we picked his plays to decide that that's what we're gonna base every theater lesson on ever. Yeah. So right. we might've just, we, we made him, I mean. Right, now some of that 
could all be exactly that. We've made him so huge. And this is actually one thing that Mark Twain was saying. He's like, I, I almost doubt that Mark Twain doubted it. But he was so contrary to everything anyway right. that he was just like, yeah, I'll say it. So we can dethrone this mythical figure that was just a guy. Maybe Mark Twain didn't actually write Mark Twain. Marlowe is still around. <laughs> Never died. <laughs> I'm going to write a musical. It's going to be about four very unkind girls. <laughs> In short spirits. <laughs> Wait, has anybody written a play about the foundation of America? <laughs> Marlo. Well, all I'm saying is Taylor Swift didn't go to college. All right. If she can write, you know, teardrops on my guitar without a degree. You know, surely Shakespeare can write Hamlet without a degree. I, I mean, mean, his son's name was Hamnet. Come on, yeah. I was talking about this with the woman I'm seeing last night. And if Shakespeare was so uneducated, there are people that we claim that are geniuses today. Well, then I'm sorry, we cannot say somebody like Jay-Z is a genius. We can't. No. You know, his education came from the street. Right. I mean, but, you know, uh, we can't say people like um, Basquiat or Andy Warhol for crying in the rain are, right? you know, like. But for all we know, in 300 years, somebody might look back and be like, Jay-Z was the defining moment. <laughs> all of the 21st century can be defined by Jay-Z. Mm-hmm. And then Animal there's going to be some guy in the back corner going, Jay-Z never existed. <laughs> it was Marlowe. It was Marlowe. <laughs> I mean, overall, it's it, it feels weird to think that, like, academics have defined what genius can or can't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? But even though we'll still take their works. Like you mentioned, uh, Mozart. Yeah, I mean, he was from a wealthy family, but he just sat down at a piano at age three and went, look what I can do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, Jim Carrey. Right. You know, goofy as heck, but now he's like this somber statesman who can, you know, state really powerful political messages. And we all go. paint. He's a really good painter. (laughs) Yeah. You didn't go to school. But you can turn your face into things. Right, right. Yeah. Make your butthole talk again. (laughs) Marlo! (laughs) It wasn't Jim Perry's butt at all. (laughs) So there we go. That's the story for today. Wow. Shakespeare didn't write any of his works. Nope. It was obviously somebody else. What do you think? Marlo is debatably the coolest person in the history of cool. I remember reading about that a couple of years ago where they're like, yeah, Marlowe died in a bar fight. And it's probably because he was a secret agent. And then the, the book just kept going on. I'm like, yeah, excuse me. What? <laughs> what? We're just writing over that? Yeah, yeah. his feather quill. One, one click to write, two clicks to shoot a poison dart. <laughs> yep. Three well, clicks explodes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley said three to write a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> the hose was a jetpack. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting to me that 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 still can be something that is actually debated. Right. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Like, and and the I mean, like all of those are clearly well thought out and researched and I guess plausible. But the so much easier answer is some guy was just talented. Like, are we so unwilling to accept that somebody had more talent than we do? Well, like mm -hmm. here's here's where I. I put like my final idea on it. Uh -huh. okay? He was two years from finishing grammar school. Right. So he was born to somebody relatively middle class mm -hmm. and had to go back and take care of that person. And that was his life from then on. Right. So frankly, he knew what the higher class would like right. and then spent most of his life with the lower class. He knew he them experienced both. all of it. He knew them both. Yeah. yeah. So there it, it's it's completely plausible that he can write something that will appeal to the lower class and then throw in a dick joke to make the groundlings laugh uh, right, yeah, right. later. It's completely yep. plausible. It's yep. all in there. And I'm I'm willing to believe, like you said earlier, like it was his troop and they kind of collaboratively wrote it. I'm willing to believe that, but but what's the point if I believe that or not? Like my complete works has a picture of Shakespeare on it. Yep. So I know we're going to continue to call it Shakespeare. We're going to continue to study Shakespeare. It's how history wrote itself. And it's why would we get hung up on not? I mean, unless he legitimately comes back, comes to the future now and says, I didn't do any of that. Right. Got you. <laughs> and maybe we can go. Oh, oh, yeah. Maybe we should think about right. that. Right. <laughs> but until then, we can just go, you know what, academics, sometimes you're wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and you're just so desperate to not want to believe that somebody could be that that witty and that smart and that clever. And I mean, people hate people. people. Like every time I see a 12 year old on American Idol that like sings like a That's god, so I'm like, I I don't like you <laughs> because I spent two years and $20,000 trying to sing like that and couldn't. So screw you. It is. Probably, <laughs> it's probably Marlowe singing. All right. So just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The true Renaissance man. And watch <laughs> yes. this motorcycle when I'm done. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's probably good for this program, unless you have any final thoughts to add to this. Dalen and Ashley, I want to thank you for being my guests on this one. It was fun. You added a lot of really great stuff to it, and I love seeing and hearing your reactions. <laughs> that I could finally fill in the holes of the life of Christopher Marlowe for you, because... A lot more. I feel I feel better and a little worse for it. So, <laughs> thank you for this opportunity. I promise you, Doctor Faustus probably won't sound any different. Right? No, I'm no, not really sound, again, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's the end of this episode of Euripides Humanities. We'll see you next time. <laughs>
Hey friends, this is your host, Aaron Odom, coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up. Or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater. That's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website, www.tridenttheater.com. Once again, this is Aaron Odom. Them, and we try to get a new episode out every two weeks, so hope to see you again in a fortnight. Good.